Hello and welcome to ABC's Movies and Talks about Linguistics. I'm your host B, and today's episode is talking about the 2016 film Arrival, the linguistic theory that it's based around, namely that language and languages can shape and change the way we think. And then we're going to talk about another way that language changes us, especially as babies. Arrival came out in 2016 and immediately bumped Inception from my top movie spot. It's a movie about a linguist, what more could you want? It's one flaw when I tried to get other people to watch it, however, was that it's really confusing. So if you, like my mother, were so lost that you fell asleep during it and then woke up at the end and needed someone to pause it and explain what had happened, or if it's because it's been five years since it came out and you just don't remember the finer details, up next is a summary of the movie before we get into the nitty-gritty linguistic stuff. I feel like I don't need to say it, but just in case, heavy spoilers ahead for the movie Arrival. So it is based on a short story by Ted Chang called Story of Your Life, which is first published in 1998. Not really important, but if you really like the story, I recommend reading the original uh, because it's a really fun read and it's pretty short. So. The summary. The movie opens with this montage of the main character Louise, who's played by Amy Adams, and her daughter Hannah as Hannah gets older and eventually dies at a pretty young age, maybe around 12, from an unspecified incurable illness. And then right after you've just been sitting in the theater for 12 minutes and you're just completely emotionally heartbroken, you've been destroyed by this, it jumps into the main story. Amy Adams' character is a linguist who's hired by the U.S. military to figure out what these aliens, these heptapods, who've landed are saying and to figure out if they're friend or foe. And the meat of the movie is Louise learning the alien language, and it's a really cool um, graphic. In the movie, their language is written in a circular fashion in such a way where the heptapods have to know the entirety of what they're saying before they can write a sentence. And so the movie is her learning the language and also a lot of side drama with the military, but I'm not going to focus on that in this summary because it's not relevant to the rest of the episode. Um, So she eventually finds out why the heptapods showed up 3,000 years in the future, they'll need humanity's help, and they know this because they see time differently than humans. Rather than a linear past, present, future timeline, the heptapods see all of time at once, which ties back into their writing system where they have to know everything before they can write a sentence. And so up until this point throughout the film, interspersed between the military drama and Louise learning their language, we've seen what we have assumed are flashbacks to her daughter Hannah's life and her time with Hannah. And then in the climactic scenes of the movie, we learn that Louise hasn't been seeing the past, but she's been seeing the future. She's been seeing a version of the future where she has Hannah, she spends time with Hannah, and Hannah eventually dies. And she's seeing this because in learning the heptapod's language, she's begun thinking and perceiving time differently. She no longer sees the linear past, present, future that we all do, but she sees it all at once like the heptapods do because she's learned the language. 
And the end of the movie is about her relationship with her linguist partner and her decision to have Hannah despite knowing what will happen to her, despite knowing that she'll die young. But the key takeaway to hold in your mind through the rest of this episode is that she sees time differently because learning the alien language changed how her brain perceives time. So this theory and this idea that a language can shape and change the way that you think or perceive things is one that linguists have been kicking around for years and years and it's kind of difficult to jump into because it's called a bunch of different things that differ a little bit from each other but not enough to really matter for today's episode It's called things like linguistic relativity, linguistic determinism, the Sapir-Whorf hypothesis, and Whorfianism. And it dates all the way back to the 18th century when these two guys, Edward Sapir and Benjamin Lee Whorf, published separate works suggesting that the language or languages one speaks limit or determine the way one thinks. So what this means is that they were saying that Our thoughts are determined by the grammar and structure of our language or languages. So if our language doesn't have an ability to say something, we can't think of it without that structure. And it fell out of favor because the original version of the hypothesis can be a little problematic. And at the same time, as people were really realizing this and getting into the weeds of why, other theories were gaining popularity. Basically, it can be problematic because it leads to a lot of stereotyping about nationalities and language speakers that really aren't good at all, and it also leads to a lot of othering of languages that are seen as less common or accepted, basically just less Western. And a lot of this romanticization in the media of this idea Uh, perpetuates and continues this issue. So recently I watched a TED talk uh, that mentioned this lack of a subjunctive tense in Vietnamese and it extends to other East Asian languages. And the speaker of the TED talk was talking about how because there's this lack of a subjunctive tense, which basically means that for in a subjunctive statement you're saying If it had rained, I would have gotten wet. You're imagining something in the past had been different and then imagining a future or a present where that had affected the outcome. So basically, the speaker was saying that because there's no subjunctive tense or mood in Vietnamese, the Vietnamese speakers don't spend time worrying about what could have been and they're better at living in the moment and looking forward. This belief that speakers of those languages literally can't think counterfactually is not only a huge generalization to make of a huge group of people, it's also othering. It's comparing something that we, as Western uh, English speakers, find very common and very intuitive, saying, wow, these people can't even think that way. It's othering. And a lot of the research done about this is done by non-native speakers. It lacks a lot of nuance and understanding of the language and contextual information that goes into a story. And finally, perhaps the largest nail in the coffin, I think, on this one is that an emotion like like regret requires counterfactual thinking. To 
feel regret, you have to be able to look back in the past, imagine something had changed, imagine something was different, and then compare a future with that thing being different to the future you're in now and want the other future. future. You ha- to experience regret, you have to be able to think counterfactually. And so if you're saying that speakers of Vietnamese and other East Asian languages cannot think counterfactually because there's no counterfactual or subjunctive tense or mood in their language, you're saying that they can't feel things like regret, which isn't true. Another example of this issue is from the Piraha tribe on the Amazon River. They are an indigenous tribe that's pretty unwelcoming of outsiders. And the one or two people who've gone in and learned their language as a second or third language have made a bunch of observations that they think have a bearing on the Piraha people's ability to think. So one of them is that there's this apparent lack of number in their language, and these linguists claim that this means that the Piraha have no ability to do math, that the lack of numbers in their language limits their ability to think in terms of math. Secondly, they claim that there is a lack of recursion in the Piraha language. If you don't know what that means, don't worry, I'm going to explain it. Basically, recursion is an ability to make an infinitely long sentence out of a finite number of words by embedding clauses. So in English, you can say that Jimmy said that Henry meant that Rebecca yelled that, and you can just keep going forever and ever by just embedding them. That's recursion. So these linguists claim that there's no recursion in the Piraha language, and that because of that, their lives are so simple. Their lives are very simple, they don't need recursion because their lives are so simple, and the lack of recursion in their language is keeping their life, their lives that simple. Which, again, othering, othering almost infantilizing, just problematic in general. So, I know I just went through all of this reasoning about why linguistic determinism, warfianism isn't good, right? But it's having a resurgence now in some linguistic circles, and that's because we've updated it to a weaker version. So instead of saying that language determines and limits the way we think, the new claim for neo-warfianism is that the language or languages we speak influence the way we think. They don't constrain, they don't limit, they don't determine. They just influence the way we think. Laura Boroditsky is one of the leading linguists in this neo-warfianism area of research. Um, So I'm going to walk you through three examples of studies that she has detailed about different ways she claims languages influence the way we think. So the first is about space and our ability to perceive spatial relations. So in Korean, there's two words for the fit of something. One for a tight fit, which would be like a pen cap on a pen, or a magnet on a fridge, or a Lego block on top of another Lego block. And one for a loose fit, 
which would be like an apple in a large bowl or that same pen in a large purse. And they found, the study found that Korean speaking adults can identify the difference between a tight fit and loose fit, while English speaking adults can't. And they also found that pre-linguistic babies, babies that haven't spoken or learned a language yet, can tell the difference regardless of what household they're from. And if you're thinking, oh, these babies can't talk, how do they know that? Basically, they show a baby examples of a tight fit, for instance. They show these, the baby all these different pictures of like two Lego blocks, a pen cap on a pen, all these examples until the baby gets bored. And then they show the baby an example of a loose fit, like a single apple in a bowl. And if the baby looks longer, the baby knows that something's different because it's not bored anymore, so it's looking longer. So because they found that Korean-speaking adults can identify the difference while English-speaking adults can't, but that all babies can identify this difference, this means that babies lose the ability to distinguish between these two as they learn English. Learning English changes the way they perceive time. It influences their ability to perceive the fit of something. Our second example is about gender. So this is just about languages that assign genders to inanimate nouns and objects, which if you have ever studied a romance language, very familiar masculine and feminine, but there's also less familiar things like neuter or vegetative. And in this study, uh, these linguists can compared the adjectives German and Spanish speakers used to describe words that differed in gender. So they compared adjectives describing the word for bridge. Bridge is feminine in German and masculine in Spanish. German speakers were more likely to use adjectives like beautiful, fragile, peaceful, pretty, and slender, whereas Spanish speakers were more likely to say that a bridge is big, dangerous, long, strong, sturdy, and towering. And then, to just make sure this wasn't a, a bias, they compared the word for key, which is masculine in German and feminine in Spanish, and they found that in German, uh, German speakers were more likely to use adjectives like hard, heavy, metal, serrated, and useful, whereas Spanish speakers were more likely to describe a key with words like golden, intricate, lovely, shiny, and tiny. So this is another example of languages influencing the way we think about objects on the basis of their assigned gender. So my final example is going to bring us a little bit closer to arrival again, just to rehash that point about time. So this is a study that Laura Borditsky actually did herself where she compared English and Mandarin because English uses horizontal spatial metaphors for time. We say we're looking forward to something, we're leaving the past behind us, we're moving meetings forward or moving them back. Mandarin uses these horizontal or horizontal metaphors that are very similar to the ones in English, but they also use vertical spatial metaphors. They use words that represent front and back, and they also use words that represent up and down to describe time. So up is the past and 
down is the future. And this study found that Mandarin speakers think about time vertically even when thinking uh, for English. Well, the reverse was true for English speakers. They consistently thought about time horizontally, which shows that there's this bias for Mandarin speakers to think about time vertically because they have the construction to do so in their language, whereas English speakers don't. For the final segment of tonight's episode, we're going to talk about another way that learning a language changes us. This change usually happens when we're infants, so we don't get to know about it until we grow up. And I'm basing this primarily around the paper, How Do Infants Become Experts at Native Speech Perception? by Janet Worker, H. Henry Young, and Catherine A. Yoshida. And like the title says, this paper talks about how infants learn the sounds of their native languages and just those sounds. So when you stop to think about it, when we're infants, we're just hearing a stream of noise, no spaces between sounds or words unless a parent or another figure is talking directly to us, right? If you think about if you've ever been in an immersion class or in a foreign non-English speaking country and you've just heard a wall of sound, you can't pick out the individual words that people are talking about at a fast conversational pace. And that's what babies are hearing all the time unless people are speaking directly to them with child-directed speech. And so before they can even begin to segment all of these sounds into words, they have to figure out which sounds matter to the language they're trying to learn, which is a harder task than you might think. Lots of sounds that we make in English change the meaning of a word, but lots of them don't. So the central message of this paper is that when we're born, we can distinguish, we can tell the difference between all of these sounds. Technically, all of the allophones. So, I'm going to throw a lot of terms around, but don't stress out. I'm going to break them down first. So, what's an allophone? What's a phoneme? I'm going to say both of these. An allophone is any sound in a language. So that includes things like ba and m, but it also includes the p in pen and the p in spin. Slightly different. A phoneme is any sound in a specific language that affects a word's meaning. So think about m and ba. We have the words bat and mat that only differ by that one sound and they differ in meaning. So we know that they're phonemes. That's how we know. And then what do I mean by distinguish? They can tell all of the sounds apart. So the paper terms infants citizens of the world because they can hear all the sounds across all of the languages. So here's where things get a bit tricky. Maybe you're thinking, yeah, sure babies can do it, but I can do it too. If there's a sound in another language that English doesn't have, I can hear it and tell it's different. These babies aren't so special. And that's true for phonemes that English lacks, like the CH in German words like Loch, which I'm not saying right, or like the clicks in Bantu languages. That's an excellent point, but there are allophones that we don't distinguish in English that other languages do. They basically, they change the meanings of the words in other languages, but in English we use them interchangeably. So, as an experiment, say the word three and the word the. 
those TH sounds are kind of different, right? Because they're different allophones. In modern standard Arabic, they're different letters. They're different phonemes because in modern standard Arabic, they change the meaning of the word, whereas in English, they don't. And then on the flip side, we can tell that ul and er, l and r, are different letters, right? Let's think about the words light and right. They only differ by that one phoneme and they differ in meaning, so we know they're phonemes. But in Japanese, they're the same sound, just like our two THs. So the paper focuses on this idea that infants learn native phonetic categories. They learn to tell the difference between phonemes that matter in a language, at least in part by what they call subregions of acoustic phonetic space which is a very complicated series of words. But an example they use is with a comparison between English and Hindi. So there are different D allophones in English and Hindi. One is retroflex and one is dental. I do not speak Hindi. I cannot show you an example of the difference, but know that they sound slightly different. It will be hard to hear if you just speak English. And so English learning infants will hear a variation around a central tendency, what they say creates a unimodal distrib distribution when they hear words like doll. And Hindi in learning infants will hear a variation which they say is distributed around two means, one for a dental D and one for a retroflex D hard to imagine what on earth they're saying. I know. So picture this. Imagine a graph with just a single bump up in the middle. That's what English speaking children are hearing. They're hearing a D in just one way. Maybe it differs a little bit, but they're not distinguishing it because they're hearing it in all the same contexts and they're just mapping it around this central tendency. Just they're labeling it as one one phoneme whereas hindi speaking children are hearing the two d's in hindi so now imagine a graph with two bumps up that have kind of a valley in the middle like an upside down w or like the arches from mcdonald's so what these hindi speaking hindi learning children are hearing and are doing they're mapping the two d's and discriminating between them they're marking them as different because they're hearing them in different contexts and never hearing one in the other context. So as babies specialize in their native language or languages, they lose the ability to tell the difference between all allophones. By 12 months, Japanese learning infants can't distinguish between the ol and the r, the l and the r, that English-speaking infants can. So now we're just going to do a little bit of a review to wrap things up tonight. We talked about the 2016 film Arrival. Amazing movie. Love it. And we talked about the central idea of learning a language and thus thinking about something differently or perceiving something differently. And we talked about how this idea comes from an old linguistic theory, which is called a lot of different things, linguistic determinism, linguistic relativity, the Sapir-Whorf hypothesis, Whorfianism. And then we went over some evidence that our language or languages do influence the way we think or perceive things. And finally, we talked about 
another way that learning a language changes us. We go from infants with an ability to hear the differences between all allophones, all of the sounds in all languages at birth, and as we learn and acquire a specific language or languages, we lose the ability to discriminate, to tell the difference between all of the different sounds. Today's episode drew on many sources. First and foremost, of course, the movie Arrival, and secondly, the short story, Story of Your Life by Ted Chang, that Arrival is based on. Following that, I briefly mentioned the TED Talk, Grammar, Identity, and the Dark Side of the Subjunctive, which is a very uplifting and meaningful TED Talk. I do recommend it. Linguistically, perhaps not what one should base their assumptions of people upon. And then I mentioned the some ideas found in the paper Reasoning Counterfactually in Chinese, Picking Up the Pieces by Ye and Gentner, which has a great rundown of the history of counterfactual studies in Chinese languages and a lot of the issues that come up with those studies. And then we talked about neo-warfianism with a bunch of examples from the paper Linguistic Relativity by Laura Boroditsky. And finally, we talked about the paper How Do Infants Become Experts at Native Speech Perception by Worker Young and Yoshida.